Are you looking for the perfect gift? Stop by Descent Pins to find everything from secret Jewish space laser core patches to pronoun pins and pride flag earrings. Descent Pins donates 50% of all purchases to charity, so your gifts keep on giving. Find the Descent Pins store at D-I-S-S-E-N-T-P-I-N-S dot com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In evolutionary terms, smell is our oldest sense, rooted in the primordial ability to detect chemicals in air and water. Yet olfaction also happens to be our least understood sense. We don't even know why, chemically speaking, certain scents smell good to us. And while it's the sense most closely tied to memory, unlike unreliable sight, most people don't care about it until they've lost it. Scott Sayre, who wrote a piece in the December issue about the mysteries of scent, joins me to discuss what little we do know about anosmia and the art of nose training, and about our tendency to take our sense of smell for granted. I want to start off by asking you about the genesis of this piece. In April 2020, you wrote an online piece for us about anosmia, which is the complete loss of smell. And a lot of the issues that you describe in that, you know, kind of lead into this, but it's also, I would say it probably focuses more on how people don't take (laughs) their sense of smell seriously, even though all of our senses have clear purposes to protect us, to help us understand the world, to avoid embarrassment. So, you know, how did this piece come about? So the 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 piece from April was done in a in a big hurry but it was done it was done because I had already gotten an assignment from the magazine to to write about smell and so uh my editor my editor got in touch with me I guess in in March of 2020 saying you know it, it's becoming apparent that anosmia is a thing related to covid could you do something quick for us because you know you're already immersed in all of this and I was, she was right. Uh, and I'm glad she asked because it was it was fascinating to dive into a little more. And in particular, gave me an opportunity to make use of this extraordinary survey that was done in 2013, if I'm recalling correctly, of, um, of several hundred anosmics, so anosmia patients, basically just responding to a, um, it was a qualitative study, and they responded to prompts in a, in a questionnaire describing their lives and what the loss of their smell had done to their lives. And it's just this incredibly rich document. A lot of people are, are quite are quite literary in their description of, of what the loss of smell is like. I, my, my favorite description, and I'm, I'm going to botch the phrasing, uh, no doubt, but my favorite description from that, the one that stuck with me is um, someone described the experience of, of losing their smell as a uh, and living without smell as looking out at the world from inside a glass box, which I think is, uh, I mean, a beautiful and terrifying way to, to describe it. So I was very pleased to, to get to make use of the study, which I, I didn't think was going to end up in the piece that I was writing. So uh, as far as the genesis of, uh, of this piece, I actually got, I got very interested in olfaction before the pandemic. And I guess I'm I'm a little proud of that um, because because I was <laughs> on something. It first. <laughs> well, I, I felt as if I was onto something really cool that nobody else was paying attention to, and then all of a sudden, uh, because of uh, because of the pandemic and anosmia, everyone was paying attention to it. 
Right. That was a source of you know personal frustration to me, I guess. Though that's not a very a very noble kind of sentiment. It's relatable. Come on. Sure. <laughs> Everyone relates to this <laughs> to a certain extent. Thank you. I appreciate that. The genesis was was essentially um, I was sort of reading around the way that I do you know casting about for for story ideas and discovered I don't remember exactly how but discovered to my to my great surprise that we know almost nothing about smell and that's the that was that was the the real germ of um, of this piece we don't know we don't know the way that smell operates um, in a chemical way so smell is a chemical sense but we don't know what it is about say any given chemical that makes it smell the way it does to us. And so we don't know what it is about the chemical, but we also don't know what it is about us. Our senses are obviously the, the fruit, or maybe not so obviously, it, 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 it's sometimes useful to remember. What we describe as our senses, our sensory experiences, are the result of an interplay between something that exists out there in the world and our minds mediated by some kind of biological system and essentially the problem in smell and i end up I, I ended up not even using this language in in the piece unfortunately but the really fascinating thing about smell is that we don't understand what that biological mediation is what it's doing the way the way to think about it the useful language i think to use is to talk about the stimulus percept problem we know there's a stimulus the stimulus is the volatile chemical uh, afloat on the air that is going to you know, go up your nostrils and is going to then interact with your biological system. We know what the percept is. The percept is the smell, what you experience as the smell. What we don't know <laughs> is how you go from the stimulus to the percept. It's a sort of black box. Because with the eye, with the eye, it's like very straightforward where it's like, you see something, you got your lens, you got your retina, you got your photoreceptors, and then the optic nerve, and it's very straightforward. The mystery of scent, as you write, is is, and also the the just the the lack of understanding or even being able to, as you write later on, the the nose on a plate to sort of replicate mm -hmm. smell, the you know scientifically to replicate a nose, mm -hmm. is it's mind boggling. The the thing the thing with smell is that I, I mean that there's <laughs> the, the problem with talking about the mysteries with smells is that there's so and of smell more generally is that they're so numerous that you, you you kind of have to stop every half sentence to say and that's another thing we don't know one of the things that that you're getting at or one way of sort of understanding what you're getting at in bringing up the notion of a nose on a plate is that we we don't know how to measure smells. So light, for example, and, and sight, which is a useful sense to refer to because it's our dominant sense and also one that has been extensively studied. Light exists along a spectrum, a quantifiable spectrum. And consequently, we can measure it. Blue light has a certain wavelength and we can measure its intensity and you can put those things together and you say, okay, you know, I know what this light source is. You know, it is of intensity X and of quality Y. We don't know how to do that for smell. We don't, we don't know what the axes of measurement would be. Certainly with our noses, we can say, you know, that's more intense, that's less intense, that's a rose, that's a violet. But, but what is the spectrum between rose and violet? And what are the ends of that spectrum? And how do you distinguish between, uh, or how do you describe the relationship between cinnamon and violet and rose 
and a putrefying corpse or freshly ground coffee. You know, they, they don't exist along a spectrum. There's a lot of discussion in the smell world about, um, about how to describe the, the smell landscape, the, smell, the, the smellscape, as it's often called, and what the shape of it might be. There's a recent theory that proposes a sort of, so if you think of, if you think of light as existing along a linear spectrum, you can think about smell as existing along a three-dimensional spectrum in the shape of a, of a Pringles potato ship, for example, which sort of allows you to conceptualize some of the relationships between different smells and place them in a kind of space that makes sense of those relationships. But in any case, the notion of how to measure a smell in the first place is, is very complicated. And so what a nose on a plate could do, a nose on a plate, to, to be clear, the idea is essentially to replicate a human nose or any other species nose if we wanted to, but a human nose is the one that's going to be useful. The idea is to replicate a human nose outside the body and to be able to use it to quantify smells. Perhaps it's useful if I explain the way that, that a human nose works as we understand it. Yes. Okay. So, and, and, what, and one thing I'll say, another mystery of smell, this one finally resolved, is that we didn't know <laughs> what was happening inside a human nose. And we still don't know in, in a whole variety of ways, but we, but we had almost absolutely no idea until about 30 years ago. The most important unit in the functioning of, of human olfaction and mammalian olfaction, I guess, in, in general, is what is now known as the odorant receptor, which is a protein. You have tons of them in your nose, but these these proteins had only been hypothesized until 1991, and they were finally discovered. It turns out, d- despite the fact that we um, that we sort of forget about olfaction, it's it, it's kind of the the least. It's a it's a very present sense, but it's the sense to which we tend to give the least attention, explicit attention. Yeah, because I, I mean, again, going back to both of those pieces, it's, you know, and I'm sure people have done this with their friends, if it's like, well, would you give up your sense of smell? Or would you give it your sense of sight or hearing or whatever? And people are always going to be like, oh, yeah, smell, that doesn't matter. Exactly. But smell is exactly like, it has the ability to, you know, it connects us with the past. It connects us with everything. And it connects us, with, you know, again, like it prevents, you know, you, you smell a gas leak. You smell a dead animal. And and there are people with anosmia who report like loss of libido. Like it has, mm-hmm. like it's an incredibly rich sense. But again, because we just sort of take it for granted in a way that other senses just are kind of not. It seems like, or I don't know, sort of justified. It's like, well, if I lost my sense of smell, I, you know, I could really lose a lot of weight because I wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> and it's like, well, that's ghoulish. But the, the, the fact that it is such a rich and complicated thing and there's just no language to describe, you know, I mean, I guess there are a lot of things in the world that we take for granted. But this, again, it is so personal. It is affecting you at every moment that you're awake. It's I don't know, inexcusable in, in a way. So there's a there's a there's a rich history of our of our ignorance of and desire to ignore smell. So you know, clearly, clearly vision is the I suppose a word to characterize it could be sophisticated of our of our senses. Um, but it's it's our least reliable sense. 
in in many ways, that's right. In many ways, that's absolutely right. And it's also it's also a much later sense than than the chemical senses of of smell and taste. But I think to it to a certain degree, smell is. I'm tempted to say smell is the water we swim in, the air we breathe. You know, the same way a goldfish doesn't doesn't know that it's swimming in water. We don't know that we're smelling all the time, but we are. And the experience of anosmics who, who lose the sense of smell tends to be this sort of disorientation that, that comes from realizing that their entire life they had been smelling beings and they didn't even know it. And, and all of a sudden it's gone and the world is just completely upended. Interestingly, people who are, there are people who are born with congenital anosmia and they don't, they don't tend to have any of this sense of loss, obviously, or disorientation. They, they live their lives perfectly happily. The same way that, that if you were born deaf or blind and you never knew the world otherwise, you adapt. Smell is the most ancient of our senses and consequently directly linked to the limbic system the, of the brain, which is, which is sort of the seat of emotion and, and memory. And I think some of the power of smell is absolutely a consequence of, of that direct linkage. Wait, do you want to do you want to keep going on the? I I, I love talking about anosmia and, and the and the role of smell, but I can also circle back to nose on a plate stuff if you want. You no, know, well, I think again, yeah, I think it would be helpful just to say what we do know and the other theories that again, none of these proven about how smell works. Okay, so maybe why don't I kind of run through um, the discovery of odorant receptors and then a description of how they might work? Yeah, That's, that seems like a good. Sorry, idea. I keep interrupting you. No, no, again, I, this I, is so fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you're you're as excited about it as I am. I, I I think this stuff is just for whatever reason deeply deeply compelling. So the, the discovery in 1991, the big discovery in in the world of olfaction research, was the discovery of odorant receptors. So odorant receptors are are the the biological unit that is that is sort of most critical to the functioning of the sense of smell. They're these tiny little proteins that exist in the nose. So uh, l- let me just very briefly describe the anatomy of of the nose. Way up in the back of your nasal cavity, literally up between your eyes, is a little patch of mucosal tissue called the olfactory epithelium. And the olfactory epithelium is dense with the protrusions of neurons called olfactory sensory neurons. These are the only neurons in your body that are directly exposed to the outside world. And embedded in these neurons, in in the cilia, so the the cilia are these, these sort of mucosal fingers that are that are dangling out into the air and you know kind of feeling around for for smells basically and embedded in the cilia are these tiny little proteins called odorant receptors and the odorant receptors it turns out in in human beings exist in somewhere between 350 and 400 different species one of the mysteries of smells remains just how many odorant receptors we actually express one of the particularities of smell uh, as a sense, is that it, it, it's the most genetically diverse of our senses. And so it, it turns out that not everyone has the same set of olfactory receptors, uh, odorant receptors. Right. The cilantro and pig taint That's right. issue. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so, so some people, on the basis of their particular genetic makeup, 
experience the smell of cilantro as smelling of soap. Some people are able to smell a hormone uh, called androstenone, which smells to some people, uh, it, it produces a, a, an awful smell called boar taint because it develops in the, in the meat of, uh, of male pigs, basically. Um, some people can smell it. It smells disgusting to them. Other people can't. Actually, there's a, just as a sort of a side note, an amusing side note. So those genetic variations are distinguishable along geographic lines sometimes. And one of them is between the British Isles and the continent of Europe. And amusingly, and I hope I don't botch this, but there are traditions in both places with relation to the castration or not of male hogs that vary according to whether or not the populations in those places smell androstenone. So if I'm remembering correctly, in the British Isles, hogs are typically not castrated. And the population of the British Isles typically cannot smell androstenone or bortaint. Whereas on the continent, people can smell androstenone. And consequently, it is thought, male hogs are typically castrated so that they can't produce androstenone and can't produce bortaint. So in any event... The, That's fascinating, though. <laughs> totally bizarre. Um, but, but yes, I agree. Ab- absolutely fascinating. And, 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 and also gets to this reality that, that smell is a part of our life and one that we're, that we're constantly taking into account without really thinking about it. And it's, so, it's sort of so deeply embedded in our life that we forget about it, but it's absolutely there and it's, and it's driving even culture. So on the olfactory sense and odorant receptors, um, the odorant receptors that are expressed in different people's noses are different. So there's some variation. And as it turns out, there's some variation within an individual's nose as well. Olfactory sensory neurons die and grow back, which is also something that distinguishes them from all the other neurons in our in our bodies. And they complete their life cycle every every month or two, essentially. And it's not always the same neurons that grow back. So each neuron expresses only one type of odorant receptor, which means that Essentially, you have you have 400 types of odorant receptor, and you have 400 types of olfactory sensory neuron in your nose. So the makeup of those neurons changes over the course of, of your life. And additionally, uh, as you get older, fewer of them grow back. This is part of why you lose your sense of smell as you as you age. So the way that the sense of smell works is that you've got these odorant receptors embedded in these olfactory sensory neurons that are dangling out in the air up at the back of your nose. And when you breathe in air, it is absolutely full of volatile chemicals, which is just to say molecules of stuff floating around. And these molecules bind uh, differentially to the odorant receptors in your nose. Now, this is one of the, the big questions in olfaction these days. What is it about these molecules? And what is it about these odorant receptors that makes some of them bind together and some of them not? And the answer is, we don't really have any clue. So, for instance, we, we can study molecules in the shape of molecules. We can, we, can, uh, we can fairly easily establish the atomic structure of, of a given molecule. And we can also figure out, to a certain degree, what the... Well, actually, let me take that back. We can't figure out, to a certain degree, or, or with any particular ease, what a protein actually looks like. I should say, and this is a useful bit of information to keep in mind, when talking about this stuff, and the piece doesn't get into this at all, unfortunately, but when when you're talking about olfaction, you need to keep 
orders of magnitude in scale in mind. So a neuron, for example, a neuron is the kind of thing, you know, you can, you can actually isolate an individual neuron and put it under a microscope, a visual microscope, and look at it. And, and you can see what's going on inside that cell. You can see that it is a cell, a unit unto itself. A protein is far, far tinier. So proteins are embedded in the membranes of, of cells like, like olfactory sensory neurons. Proteins are, are, are minuscule. You, you, you cannot see them through a normal microscope. The only way to, to visualize them is, is, with a, is with an electron microscope. And to do that, you need to crystallize them, which is a complicated thing to do. And so we've, we've never actually visualized an odorant receptor. But odorant receptors in relation to neurons are these, are these invisible, invisibly tiny structures. Smells, which is to say uh, molecules that result in, in the experience of, of scent, are, as compared to a protein, also almost invisibly small. They're, they're another order of magnitude smaller. So a protein is composed of tons and tons of amino acids, tons and tons of molecules, but they're binding with these, these tiny, 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 tiny little things. And so I, I think it's, it's important to remember that you're kind of going down this chain of scale as you get to smell. And we don't understand, we have questions about how things are functioning at all of these different scales, at the scale of the cell, at the scale of the protein, and at the scale of the molecule. So at the scale of the molecule, we don't know what it is about a given molecule that causes it to bind with an odorant receptor. The thinking these days, the going theory of, um, of olfaction at a molecular level is, is called the um, odotope theory or the weak shape theory. And the idea is that if you take a molecule, it has all different sorts of bulges and, and extensions and, and different shapes in different parts of it. And those different parts of it are going to bind with more or less affinity with different odorant receptors. And so they're not going to bind perfectly, but you know, you've got a sort of, perhaps you have a sort of convex bulge on, on one end of a particular molecule. And that's going to bind with the concave binding pocket of a given odorant receptor. And, and for some molecules, uh, some molecules will have a convex shape that fits perfectly um, and with great affinity. And that will produce a stronger smell or, or a stronger aspect of a smell than another molecule that you'll also kind of smell but a little bit less because the shape isn't quite as perfect. That, in a sort of bastardized form, is the going theory. But there are other theories. And one of the theories, for example, is, is what's known as the vibrational theory, which says, no, 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 you know, the interaction between molecules and odorant receptors is not a function of shape, but rather a function of the frequency at which, uh, you know, X molecule vibrates and the electromagnetic emissions from that molecule, either in the infrared spectrum or in the ultraviolet spectrum, or you know, it depends, it depends who you're, whose theory you're, you're, you're talking about. None of this has ever been disproven or proven. One of, one of the big questions um, that any theory of olfaction is going to have to be able to answer is how it is possible that molecules of radically different appearance can produce smells that are utterly similar, and how, by the same token, molecules of almost identical appearance can produce smells that are radically different. Any theory of olfaction is going to have to explain that. 
for the moment, we don't really have one that can do it perfectly in any in any case. There, there are tons of good examples. The one that the olfactory researchers will often point to because it's sort of so striking is uh, is the example of carvone. Carvone in in one form, there there are two isomers of carvone. So isomers are sort of mirror images of one another. So same, you know, precisely the same shape. It's like your two hands, precisely the same shape, just a, a mirror image. One of them smells like caraway seed. The other one smells like peppermint. They're almost identical, and nobody has any clue why. So we don't really know what's going on in the individual interaction between molecules and odorant receptors. But the theory, and this is the going theory that everyone more or less agrees with about, about the way that scent functions at a slightly higher, at a, at a higher scale, is that what's happening inside the nose when you breathe in a complex mixture of volatile compounds, which is what's always in the air, um, as a side note, I, I, I think it's useful to point out that we have a tendency to conceptualize smells as these, you know, these, these plumes out in the air that, you know, sort of usually we're breathing in this empty space and, and sometimes we'll come in contact with this plume of scent. That is a serviceable metaphor. Certainly it describes the way we experience scent, but it is absolutely untrue <laughs> as a description of what's actually going on in the world. The air that we breathe is is suffused with volatile compounds, absolutely dense with them, and part of what our part of what our noses are doing is actually is actually deciding which ones we're going to pay any attention to and deciding which ones we're not. So there isn't a plume of scent out there. There's this insanely dense mixture of chemical information, and the nose is is sort of pulling relevant information out of that odoriferous noise. Right. So we're parsing it, even though we aren't, you know, consciously parsing. It, correct. Which is, again, a, a crazy thing to think. Absolutely correct. I spoke at great length with a, with a researcher uh, named Paul Feinstein, who put it to me this way, which I, which I think is really useful. It's, it's sort of like when you smell a fire. Um, say you smell a forest fire. That forest fire is emitting all sorts of different smells. You know, if it's in a pine forest, it, you smell pine. You can smell the smell of bark and wood. If you don't want to die... The important thing for you to experience is the smell of smoke. And so, and so your nose does that for you. It has evolved to do that for you. To, you know, it smells the smoke and makes you pay attention to that because that's the important thing for you in the circumstance of a, of a forest fire. And your nose is doing that constantly without, without any sort of conscious involvement, without any sort of involvement from the brain or, or from the mind anyway, the conscious mind. The nose is constantly rejecting some inputs and, and selecting others to experience. So the point of agreement among olfactory researchers who can't necessarily agree on what's happening at the level of the individual odorant receptor and the individual molecule, what it is about that molecule that causes it to bind with that odorant receptor. What they agree on, typically, is that odor is a kind of combinatorial code. You can sort of choose your metaphor for understanding this, I think one nice way to do it is to think of the nose as a piano keyboard. So you've got about 400, let's say 400 different kinds of odorant receptors. Those are the keys. And what happens when an odorant, so a molecule, enters the nose is that it binds, it taps on those keys in different ways. 
So most of the keys, it doesn't tap on at all. Some of them, it's going to tap on very strongly, others a little more weakly. And the chord that results from the interaction between that keyboard and the molecules that comes in, that's playing the keyboard, is the signature of that, of that scent. It's the musical notation of that scent. Another, another useful metaphor, I think, for the way that smell works. So I think one really useful way to, to do this is to kind of visualize a nose on a plate. A nose on a plate, which is a, a concept that, that a number of researchers are, uh, are sort of chasing, and industry is chasing as well, uh, I should say. The concept of a nose on a plate is essentially that if we say we humans have about 400 different kinds of odorant receptors. Okay, so a nose on a plate is you've got a, a gridded plate of little wells uh, the sorts of things that you see, you know, biologists pipetting different things into. You've got you've got a plate of four hundred little wells, and in each of these wells, you put a different species of human odorant receptor, and then you cover it and you pump in a scent. You pump in some molecule that you want to test. So you you have prepared these odorant receptors in such a way that if they react with, if they bind with the molecule in question, those wells are going to fluoresce, they're going to light up. And so what you do is you pump in a scent and you wait and you see which of the odorant receptors bind with the chemical that you have pumped in. And invariably, only a few of them will, some more strongly than others, most of them will be silent. But if you, if you then take off the lid of the plate and look at the visual pattern that has been created. You basically have, so you have a, if it's 400, so, so you've got a square that's, that's 20 by 20. Um, and let's say you've got about 15 dots that are illuminated and, every, and everything else is, is silent. That's a pretty distinctive pattern. It looks to me anyway, like, um, like the kind of thing, like the punch cards that used to be fed into big mainframe computers as instructions. And in effect, that pattern is instructions for the brain. That is the coded message that is sent to the brain that tells it, make, make this smell. Make this smell experience for the consciousness of the person who knows this is. So you've gone from, you know, it, essentially all of our senses are, are, um, are systems of signal transduction. You've got a signal out there in the world. It is the chemical that we say um, because it's a useful shorthand, we say it has a smell. It doesn't actually have a smell. It's just a chemical. Uh, you know, th there is no, it, it, it's sort of the same way, um, <laughs> the same way that we all wonder on some level if what you think of as blue is actually the same thing that I think of as blue. We both know to call it blue, but, but is there actually such a thing as blue in an absolute sense? We, we don't, we don't know. Right. Or even, or even if we are perceiving the world with the same, you know, it's it's being represented the same way to everyone. Like, there's no way to really know that. Like, okay, so maybe this table appears one way to you and it appears another way to me. That's right. Just, it, it, there's no way to know. There's, I, I, there, I mean, there's, there's certainly good reason to believe that we are, especially because, you know, we've all, we've all evolved from the same lineage. And, um, but, uh, but that's right. You know, we, we don't have, we don't have, actual access to everyone else's consciousness, at least not yet. 
uh, maybe maybe <laughs> Let's keep if it that Mark way. Zuckerberg has his way, uh, <laughs> things will change. But but in a, in a similar way, the scent of a rose, uh, you know, everyone who is able to smell is probably capable of saying, yeah, that's you know, that's a rose. That's what a rose smells like. But actually, a rose doesn't doesn't in any in any absolute sense have a smell. It is just it is just chemicals emanating from from this physical thing. So it's just chemicals. However, what our bodies do is to transduce that chemical signal into an experience. And the way it does it is through the nose. So the molecule enters the nose. It binds differentially in a, in a distinctive pattern with the odorant receptors embedded in the neurons of the nose. And that pattern is sent up, that, that distinctive pattern is sent up a pathway into the brain where it is made into our experience of scent. And so what the discovery of odorant receptors has enabled us to do in a certain way is to, is to see into the black box of the nose, to see, to see the way that the chemical information out there in the world is being translated before being sent up to the brain to be made into the experience of scent. So I guess the 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 I, I try to keep in mind these two these two metaphors. The one of the piano being played to people of a certain frame of mind, the notion of a different smell being a particular chord played with particular intensity is probably pretty resonant. And for other people, the notion of uh, of these um, of these instructions, these computer instructions for the computer of our brain, is probably a relevant metaphor. I mean, I wanted to ask, you don't get into this in the piece, but is there a theory about allergic reactions to scent? Because I, when I was a kid, I remember, again, this is, again, just sort of speaks to the mystery of scent. I remember somebody washed their hands with Irish spring and I was in the other room over and I just started coughing, just like I could barely breathe. I don't have that problem now. Interesting. But I still am allergic to like lavender. And, you know, thank God all these uh, lavender scented products are actually vanilla. <laughs> but That's right. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, you know, there are people who are just like, oh, I, I don't like that smell. But then there is sometimes this physical reaction to smell. And it's, again, it's very strange. I, uh, uh, it is. I, I don't. Allergies tend to involve other other chemical pathways, you know, histamines and all of that stuff. And so I don't I, I haven't studied up on any of that lately anyway. And so I don't, I don't want to speak specifically to the notion of allergic reaction. But what I can say is that, I, I guess, two things. You know, it occurs to me that, that your smell, um, your sense of smell does evolve over time and, it, and change. And it's possible that, actually, this, the, this spurs in me a whole number of different thoughts, which I hope you'll be willing to entertain. The, the, <laughs> the sense of smell evolves over time. And so it's possible that at the time that you smelled this Irish spring scent, um, and that you found it completely intolerable, it is possible that the composition of your nose, the odorant receptors that were expressed in your nose, was different than it is now. Right. Well, I mean, our, all of our cells in our bodies are completely replaced every seven years. So, right. <laughs> I mean, again, we're, you know, we're, we're always like dying and coming back. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and, there's, and there's presumably more of you now than there was when you were, when you were a little girl. Yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, maybe those new cells are somehow different. And no doubt, your, you know, your hormonal composition has, has, has changed over the course of time and the, 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 all sorts of biological changes 
happening that that might have some sort of you know relevance to to this to this change in experience. One of them, I think, could easily be the change in the actual composition of your nose. Another, and and this this doesn't come up at all in the piece either, but but is is quite important. Another is so so researchers, neuroscientists, and and a certain category of um, olfaction researchers will make a distinction between essentially there's there's a there's a difference between or there can be a difference between the actual activation of the receptors in your nose and the attention that your that your brain pays to that activation so there's there is not and this should be made clear there is not a one to one relationship between the signal that the nose sends up to the brain and the experience of smell that comes out the brain is doing all sorts of complicated things that we don't understand at this point, you know, integration and connections to other to other senses and memories, and you know, we don't understand how any of that works. But one thing that we do understand is that there is this transformation that happens, and and sometimes the transformation appears to happen differently. And so, a good example of this, uh, to make it clear, is there are, as I understand it, a, a not insignificant proportion of a pregnant women who all of a sudden, um, after being lifelong coffee lovers, or at least coffee tolerators, find coffee to be utterly repulsive. And obviously the coffee hasn't changed in composition. And it doesn't appear that their noses have changed in composition. It rather appears that their experience, their subjective experience of a particular odorant, and in this case it appears to be indole, the odorant known as indole, um, has changed likely or perhaps as a, as a consequence of their pregnancy. Um, so indole is a, is a kind of interesting molecule. In high concentrations, it smells like feces and is in fact a, a, a core uh, component of what we experience as, as the smell of feces. At, at lower concentrations, it smells flowery and it is in fact a core component of the smell of jasmine, for example. It's also present in the smell of coffee. And uh, so, you know, one of the one of the the presumably hundreds of volatile compounds that that uh, that come together to create the the unified experience of the smell of coffee is indole. The thought is that when you're pregnant, as a protective mechanism, perhaps for the fetus, you become hypersensitive to indole, and and consequently, coffee all of a sudden starts to smell like shit. Nothing has changed in the chemicals that are being emitted from the coffee, nothing has changed in your own nose. But your brain, perhaps as a consequence of hormonal changes in your body related to pregnancy, is ultra-attentive to indole now. Uh, And so you smell it with a a far greater intensity than you otherwise would have. So so it's possible that something, to to circle back to your example of Irish Spring, it is possible, it seems to me, that, that something along those lines might have been happening to you. you. You know, for whatever reason, you might have been ultra, you know, as a learned response, as a, as, as a hormonal response, as, as, as something else, you might have been ultra attentive to some particular component of, of Irish Spring, maybe something that exists in, you know, a vanishingly small quantity and, and otherwise constitutes only the tiniest proportion of the experience of Irish Spring. Maybe you were ultra attentive to it, and, and you found it utterly intolerable. You know, this sort of leads into one of the big parts of your piece, which is, well, I don't want to say 
corporate sense, but <laughs> consumer sense, you sure. know, and yeah. the, the, the engineering of smells. Famously, Subway has that smell that they pump out of their stores to make you want to eat the fresh bread. And the, I don't know, that smells terrible to me. <laughs> Again, just an anecdotal. Uh, but absolutely appealing to, to plenty of other people, yes. Exactly. And then, and then uh, you know, like detergents, all sorts of things that, again, we're using in our daily lives, things that we might just, again, take for granted that they smell this way, but they're th the product of this very intense engineering and trial and error that, again, it really has an advanced sense, you know, since Jean-Carl. Yes, yeah. He systematized all these different scents in order to make new perfumes. But like, I wanted to ask about Gary Marr, who serves as a kind of guide through the world of contemporary perfuming. How did you meet Gary and what made you choose him as your primary subject? It's a great question. So one of the one of the big challenges writing about perfume in general and, and the fragrance and flavor industry is that they're extremely secretive. <laughs> Because these are like 10, you know, these are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. They are, or tens of millions, or, the, you know, I mean, there's a concept that's important to understand, or, or useful anyway, to understand about, about the fragrance and flavor industry. We don't understand anything about scent uh, in a sort of broad way. As a consequence of that, when you figure out how to do something particular, something you want to do, something desirable, when you figure out how to make something smell the way you want it to smell, that information only you have. And so, and so you want to keep it secret. And consequently, fragrance formulae are confidential. Even, even within the particular company that I, that I wrote about um, called Firminiche, within Firminiche, perfumers, all of whom work for Firminiche, are being paid by Firminiche, perfumers can't see one another's perfume formulas unless they are given explicit authorization by the author of the formula. So they're colleagues, they're working side by side, but, but, they, but they don't share their formulae because each of them is figuring this stuff out as they go. And when they make discoveries, they want to keep them proprietary because that knowledge, that special knowledge is what makes them good as perfumers, among other things, uh, you know, setting aside creativity and, and élan. You know, what makes them good as perfumers is, is, the, is the knowledge that they have developed as a, as a consequence of, of experimentation, trial and error. So that sense of secrecy permeates the entire perfume industry, and it extends to sales numbers, it extends to client lists, the industry is extremely secretive. And, and so this, I, I would submit, is probably one of the reasons that you don't see more writing about perfume, <laughs> but it was also a constraint, obviously, on, on, on my writing about it. And so the way that I went about reporting this was, was to, to sort of try to convince Firminiche to, to, to let me in the door a little bit. And and they did. I, I I'm deeply grateful to to, to Firminiche for for having made it possible for me to um, to do the reporting that I did. Uh, it's it's not something that they are accustomed to, and it's something that made them very uncomfortable at various points. But they were they were um, overall pretty um, pretty accessible and pretty responsive to, to to my requests. I was interested in writing about so the fragrance the fragrance industry is sort of divided into informally, um, although although it does actually look like this in terms of its structure, but also there's a sort of culture around it, is divided into the realm of consumer fragrances, sort of functional fragrance, and fine fragrance. Fine fragrance is the glamorous stuff, 
and uh, consumer fragrance is everything else. And I was, I, I guess, by my own sensibility, but also a sort of calculus about, about what was going to be interesting, I was drawn to the consumer side of things, in large part because I think part of what excites me so much about smell, and we've already talked about this in other ways, but part of what attracted me about smell is, is that it is so ultra-present in our lives, and we pay so little attention to it. And I wanted to, I wanted to know, I, I think I'm always attracted to stories about, about how the world works in these complicated ways that we don't pay any attention to because we're not made to, but are actually fascinating when you, when you get down to it. I wanted to know about, uh, you know, who's making the smells that, that undergird our, our rather blithe experience of day-to-day life. And I discovered that there's this extremely rich, you know, unsurprisingly, there's this extremely rich subculture of, of people who make it their business to, to think about the smells that go into everything. And I was introduced to Gary Marr as a, as a sort of exemplar of consumer fragrances. Gary, Gary is a, certainly within Fermanish and within consumer fragrance more broadly is, is, uh, is a star known for, you know, known for having created a whole number of extravagantly successful uh, consumer perfumes, including, and I, I am restricted by, by, uh, <laughs> you had to sign an NDA. <laughs> I, 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 no, it's, to my surprise, they, they never asked me to sign an NDA, but I did make a pledge to keep certain things confidential. And, um, and one of the things that I, that I pledged to keep confidential is the name of the, of the very famous fabric softener scent that if you live in North America, um, I can almost <laughs> guarantee you have smelled that Gary Marr um, invented several years ago um, and that has you know, remained the scent. So um, consumer goods companies update the scents of their products almost constantly. They test them. They market test them constantly because scent is almost the exclusive criterion by which consumers decide to buy or not uh, a given product. You know, I, I, I think you'd probably be hard pressed to say whether Tide or Arm & Hammer or All did a better job of actually, you know, actually washing the dirt out of your clothes. But you probably have a preference about about the scent that each one leaves behind, or the scent that that you know when you smell it neat when you open the when you open the top. You probably have a preference about the scent, and so they they spend a lot of time paying attention to that. And and this scent that I'm describing of Gary's, this fabric softener scent, has not been updated in many many years because it's because it's sort of considered to be such an extravagantly good scent. Oh, just like Chanel Number no. Five. That's right. Just a classic scent. That's right. <laughs> Interestingly, this scent is uh, is is not unrelated to to Chanel Number no. Five in the sense that it's that it's a strongly aldehydic scent, mm. lots of aliphatic aldehydes, giving it that sort of soapy, fresh lift aspect to it. But but so I encountered Gary in in the course of my reporting, and and it was clear to me that he he was an ideal source and an ideal character for me in the sense that he was at once totally passionate about his work. And, and completely excited by it. And on the other hand, I, I think at a certain, you know, at, at, a, at a stage in his career where he was, where he was sort of willing to break with some of the mythology of, of the perfume industry, also coming from a side of the perfume industry that, that looks on all of that mythology with a sort of mix of jealousy and resentment and, and ridicule, <laughs> And, uh, and so he was going to, you know, he, he was both going to speak to me excitedly and enthusiastically about his work and a little bit dispassionately 
about what it really means to be a perfumer. He also had this wonderful, he, and he still says this, this wonderful accent. Um, it's, it's the sort of thing you you know you wish you were you wish you were making a radio piece. Sometimes Gary sounds almost exactly like Alan Rickman. Uh, I don't know if you can <laughs> conjure up that 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 sort of languorous, you know, simultaneously languorous and and crisp British accent. It's just a lovely sounding voice, and I was attracted to that as well. And so we spent a whole bunch of time with Gary and, and you know, saw him test uh, probably a dozen different, um, different scents for, for all sorts of different things and tried to, tried to transmit um, some of his enthusiasm and some of his sort of dispassionate analysis in, in the way that I wrote about him. I mean, and this, his, his skills, mm-hmm. when, you know, at one point you described that early on he was able to smell someone smoking in the car ahead of him, even though both of their windows were rolled up, which That's is right. yeah. crazy. It was a very, a very cute sense of smell. You know, going back to anosmia, there's been some recent movements to, to do smell training. That's right. In order to regain a sense of smell. And obviously, whatever Gary did to get this super nose probably also involved some, some type of really acute smell training as absolutely. well. So, so could you talk about that process? Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. The only really effective thing that anybody knows about to regain your sense of smell is, is, is what's called smell training. And, and it basically involves smelling things systematically until you can finally smell them. There was a wonderful, or what I thought was a wonderful metaphor for, for this process that I came across in writing a little bit about anosmia, put out by a by a charity in the UK, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, called Absent, the word absent, like absence, but with a with an S C in there, like scent, for those who have lost their scent. Uh, a, a training video related to to smell training, um, where the the trainer describes the process. The smell training usually involves four different odors. If I'm remembering correctly, it's lemon, clove, eucalyptus, and rose. And they, they come in little jars. You know what you're supposed to be smelling because the jar says rose or eucalyptus. And you, uh, you put your nose over it and you try to smell it. And if you're anosmic, if you've lost your sense of smell, you can't. But the idea is that you do it over and over and over again until you finally begin to get, you know, just the faintest little bit of it. And, and the, the way that it's described in this, in this training video is that it's like standing over a deep, dark well and dropping a pebble and waiting to hear just that faintest little splash when it finally hits the water at the bottom. And you do it over and over and over again until you finally hear that splash. And then you keep doing it. So that's what, that's what smell training for anosmia is. No one really knows why it works or what's happening are odorant receptors growing back is there some sort of upregulation happening in the nose um you know no one no one actually in the case of covid for example no one knows why we lose our sense of smell or why some covid patients lose their sense of smell by a similar token nobody knows what's going on when you're doing smell training but what we know uh, and this is the case of gary and anyone else who has been trained as a perfumer is that your sense of smell grows progressively more and more acute as you train it. And so what training looks like for a perfumer, it's basically a form of rote memorization. It is putting a chemical name to a particular scent. And so you smell them over and over and over again, and then you try to remember what chemical that was. And then you make it more complicated. You know, you, you start combining the chemicals and remembering which chemicals smell good together and how they smell. 
and you progress through this until until you get to the point where you can sort of imagine a perfume in your mind and say, ah, you know, well, what I need as a bass note is, you know, is is a is a uh, what what is called an accord in in the terminology of, of perfuming. I need an accord of you know these four notes, and then I'll make a middle note out of out of a different accord, and then I'll make a top note out of these other ones. What happens is that, as, as Gary explained through the example of smelling cigarette smoke in his car on the highway, coming from the car in front of him, despite the fact that both of them had their windows closed, uh, is that your sense of smell grows much more acute. And so you you start as as a again the, the the sort of physiology under underlying this change is not understood, but your smell grows far more acute, so that you're able to distinguish the smell of you know damask rose from a particular other species of rose, so that you're able to smell the extremely faint scent of and I had this experience you know being with Gary and kind of testing things alongside him. When you test detergents or fabric softeners, you test them on cloth, and you test them on on damp cloth, which is usually you know almost anyone can smell the scent of of a of a detergent or a fabric softener when you you know think of taking clothes out of out of your laundry machine, or you know if you have the misfortune like me to have to go to the laundromat, taking them out of somebody else's laundry machine. But if you take them out of the laundry machine, you, you know you smell them and they smell like something. Um, everyone can smell that. Some people can also smell them uh, after they come out of a dryer or after they come off the line. And testing perfumes on dry cloth is an important part of, of the process for perfumers like Gary Marr. And so, you know, visiting with him, I did a fair amount of smelling detergents, for example, on, on dry cloth and, uh, you know, testing five different detergent scents, you know, going down a line. I don't think I ever smelled anything on any of those cloths. But Gary, you know, Gary smelled something radically different between each one and had, you know, very strong feelings about which one was better and which one was not as a consequence of, of having a highly trained nose. The other, just as an anecdote, the other thing I'll note is, so laundry, the actual laundering of cloth is an important process, an important part of the process for, for, um, for testing detergents. You need to make sure that, that the cloths you're using do not contain any sort of smell confounds, you know, either the remnants of some previous perfume um, or even just the smell of the cloth itself. And so they, they, they get laundered in a, in a very systematic way. Laundry is taken extremely seriously at, at, at Furman Heesh. And, and I spoke a little bit with the, um, with the young man who was, uh, was, was responsible for laundering everything, who explained the whole process to me. You know, every, every cloth between tests is, uh, is laundered in, in decontamination cycles of, of several hours, you know, in hot water so that the scent totally gets out. But, but one thing that he said is, you know, he's not a perfumer and had no intention of becoming a perfumer. He had just been hired to do the laundry at Fermanish. But he said that he, he um, so Fermanish's laboratories are, are in Plainsboro, just outside of Princeton. And he commuted in from, uh, from Philadelphia every morning. And he said that since beginning his job a few months earlier, he had realized that Philadelphia smelled absolutely disgusting. <laughs> and that every day when he drove back into Philadelphia, he now thought to himself, is this really what Philadelphia smells like? Have I been living in this my entire life? So, so just the fact of, of, it, of you know, paying attention to smell. And, and he, as the launderer for, for Fermanish, is, is now you know, professionally obligated to, to pay attention. Just as a consequence of paying attention to smell, his smell had grown more acute. Um, so, so smell, smell can absolutely be trained. 
no question about it. We just don't know how. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I was so fascinated by the idea of, you know, people with anosmia trying to remember the scent as they smell the scent. Like, that's such a sad, beautiful, beautiful kind of act. Do you think now that as we're coming out of the pandemic, there is going to be a little bit better understanding or attempts to understand scent or even just the the notion that we could work toward having some sort of vocabulary for it. I mean, because just to give an example, we have words for different facial expressions. But like if you're watching an actor, how they render that facial expression, it's more than they're just frowning. Like there's something else going on. There are these little parts of the face that are moving that everyone so that makes, you know, everyone's frown different. And we really don't have that vocabulary for the most popular sense site. So it, it seems it seems like one of those many things that are overdue as we uh I don't know. I mean we have CRISPR. Like can't we just can we can't just go back to the fundamentals for a second? <laughs> I, so you're absolutely right. I mean the the one of the fundamental problems with smell and probably also part of the reason that we tend to give it less of our attention is that we don't we, we don't have words. Interestingly, different different cultures attend more to smell, and and there are cultures. Um, there, there's a there's a there's a small strain of anthropology that that does olfactory studies, basically. And said, I'm 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 not going to remember the name of the particular tribe, nor the I'm I'm not going to remember where they are. But there is a, there is a tribe in particular that has been that has been studied extensively. Is probably too much, but. Um, but enough to know they have an extensive vocabulary for smell and pay very, very close attention to it. And in fact, use smell in all sorts of much more direct ways than, than we tend to. They exchange their own smells, for example, as a form of greeting. Curiously, um, that, that may also be the source of the tradition of the handshake. There have been- Or kissing the face too, Absolutely, right? absolutely. Um, that's precisely right. Uh, there's a there's a fascinating study that's been done uh, in the context of, around handshakes in particular. That basically um, uh, it was a psychological study. Told people uh, to go into a room and to shake hands with people. And um, I'm I'm going to botch here because I haven't looked at the the specifics of this study in quite some time. But told people to to shake hands with people, and then just stand around. And they were videotaped. And it turns out that there was a extremely statistically significant difference between what you did when you shook the hand of a member of the other sex and the same sex. You smelled your hand after shaking hands. If I'm remembering correctly, men shaking hands with other men sniffed their hands unconsciously. We're, we're constantly sniffing our hands without thinking about it. Yes. Also, how diseases. I, among other <laughs> things, that's absolutely right. We're always touching our faces. That's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, sticking our fingers in our eyes and stuff. Um, but we also put them completely unconsciously beneath our nostrils and sniff them. And it turns out that after, if I'm remembering correctly, after men shake hands with other men, they're they're something like ten times more likely to sniff their hands than when they shake hands with women. 
presumably as some sort of, you know, to analyze whether in a, in a primordial way to analyze whether this, you know, this other being is friend or foe and, you know, whether you need to, whether you need to fight him or not. Or if he's going to steal your girl because he smells better. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, precisely. Um, whether he is kin or not. Uh, so, so smell is, is, is absolutely present in, in ways that we don't pay attention to. But to get back to language, we don't have it. Uh, we don't have language for smell. There's no, there's no sort of definitive explanation for that, except to say that, um, that for whatever reason, our brains just don't seem to be able to, to give definition or, or sort of precise edges to this. Or I, I've come to think of smell and smells as, as sort of auras. You know, we, we, talk about, um, we talk about visual objects, for example, and even auditory objects. But a smell isn't an object, it, it, or it certainly doesn't feel like an object. It feels like it feels like something much more diffuse, much more emotional. And I think consequently, our our language, which is especially in English rather scientific, doesn't match up particularly well. I, I find that um, I, I speak French. My my wife is French, and so I spend a lot of time in French, uh, and I spent a, a fair amount of time living in France. I find that French and other Romance languages, which have far fewer words than than English. And consequently, operate in a, in a sort of more poetic way um, by allusion and connotation, because because individual words are are forced to contain more meanings can be can be a more effective language to communicate about smell, because the words are by their nature less specific and more evocative. I've I've come to think of of, of French as the as the sort of language of poetry, and and general imprecision. And and English as a as a much more scientific, you know, sort of it's a scalpel where where French is, I don't know, a paintbrush or something, but but we absolutely like the language for it. There's no question, and I and I don't think there's much prospect of that changing. Where I do think there there is likely to be some change uh, as a consequence of COVID uh, is is that um, people are much more attuned these days, and and I mean I I'm conscious of this because I was I was paying attention to how little people were paying attention to smell before COVID, and I'm paying attention to how much more they're paying attention to it now, people, people are paying far, far more attention to smell. And I think in particular, so one of the, one of the great frustrations of, of anosmics in the pre-COVID era is that no one took them seriously. As you've alluded to before, you know, people said, uh, you know, oh, it, you know, it must be nice not to smell those awful things. And for whatever reason, um, I, I discovered this in, in doing a little bit of research, the, the British, in particular, almost invariably talk about the smell of dirty diapers when they're talking about anosmia, largely as something that it, that it is positive not to have to smell anymore. Well, they're not castrating their pigs. They don't know. <laughs> that, that may be true. <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. Perhaps, you know, perhaps the British are more attuned to the odor of feces for some reason, perhaps genetic, than, than the rest of us. But, they, but, but, but the British kind of invariably bring up the smell of you know, dirty nappies when talking about why it must be nice to lose one's sense of smell. Um, I, I think that sort of discourse is probably uh, on its way out. And, and people are going to be much more sympathetic to anosmics who... To refer back to this to this big study of, um, of of anosmia patients from about a decade ago, beyond the actual loss of their sense of scent, their biggest complaint was the way that they were treated by the rest of the world and ignored by the rest of the world and even ridiculed by the rest of the world, including doctors, who had a tendency, according to their reports, to tell them, you know, you're imagining this; it's psychosomatic, or it simply doesn't matter. 
even in the United States, uh, I'm, I'm going to forget what the organization that actually makes these assessments are, but uh, there's an official organization that, that defines your degree of disability as a consequence of various injuries or, or, um, or diseases or conditions. If you're blind, if you're completely blind, you're, you're considered to be 95% disabled. The same organization, if you, have, if you have no sense of smell whatsoever, considers you to be only 5% disabled. And my suspicion is that that sort of thing is going to change with, with so many more people experiencing you know, dysfunction of scent. I think it will be hard not to pay attention to it and not to take it seriously. Right. Last question. When we talk about sense, but in English with this sort of imprecision, sometimes we fall back on the words like fruity and, uh, you know, crisp or, or whatever, you know, kind of, kind of words that are borrowed from sommelier, wine tasting language. Sure. But that's bullshit. Like, that's, <laughs> like I've read plenty of stuff where it's like, that's actually not real. But is it? I think it's uh, I, I think it's us, you know, grasping at at, at I, I, I don't think it's bullshit. And you know, I mean, a, a sommelier, for example, is essentially a person with an extremely refined sense of smell, not taste. Uh, taste, you know, our experience of flavor is almost entirely a function of smell. You can famously only taste five different things. Uh, you can taste sweet. You can taste salty. You can taste bitter. You can taste sour and you can taste umami, but you can't taste violety. <laughs> you can't, you, you know, you can't taste full-bodied ripe fruit. That's all a function of smell, of olfaction. So, on the one hand, they they're really smelling these things. I, uh, you know, they're not they're not making it up, uh, or at least <laughs> they may be sort of mystifying it for you know for the purposes of yeah, total again, like you said, the the mystification of the per perfumery, of course, yes. Uh, Start in France, you know. Unsurprisingly, like, yes, exactly. Unsurprisingly, yes, <laughs> exactly. No, there's there's a certain amount of showmanship and salesmanship associated with with uh, with oenology and the sommeliers' work, no question. But it's very real. I I have actually in in uh, in at another time written about um, wine tasting competitions and the things that people are capable of identifying correctly in wines is just extraordinary, you know, the, the ability to sort of smell something and say, ah, yes, you know, I know, I know not only the varietal that this was made from, but the vineyard and the vintage. And I know that it was, you know, I, I know that it was uh, aged in, I don't know, you know, port oak and opened, you know, anyway. So it's, it, it is very real. Uh, but the language, the language is, you know, reaching for, for something to describe the experience. So, so one thing, one thing that I that I do think is an, is an important thing to note is that smells seem to have. So I don't think of them as objects. I, I don't think most people think of them as objects, but they do seem to exist in space. And I don't, I, I don't mean that uh, you know there's a plume of scent that you can follow. That's uh, you know that that is true. If a flower is emitting its odor, it can be carried on the wind in a sort of trail of scent, and you can follow it back to the flower. You know that that is true, and that is a way, you know, a form of scent existing in space. But here, I mean, you get a physical feeling, a feel about the physicality of a scent. Uh, so, a lot of perfumers, for example, talk about lift. You, you, there are ingredients that you can add to a perfume that give it, you know, not only a different hedonic scent. Hedonic is is, a, is, a, is meant to refer to the to the actual smell quality, what it smells like. 
you know, it smells of violet or jasmine or, or ambergris or whatever. That's the hedonics of a scent. But there's also a sort of physical experience of the scent. Um, it feels like it's lifting you up. It feels rich. It feels creamy. It feels watery. There, there is a sort of physical component to scent. And some of the language that we use, you know, you were talking about a crisp scent, for example, some of the language that, that we use attempts to make reference to that, to that physical experience. No one has a particularly good explanation for what that is. Pretty clearly, it is, it is part and parcel. I, I mean, one thing that's obvious is that it's made by our brain. The fact that, to take an example of a, of a highly popular perfume chemical, a liliol, Liliol, which is now being banned increasingly because it's because it's an allergen and 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 I, I believe a carcinogen as well, but it's extremely popular in in the realm of perfumery. It smells like lily of the valley or muguet, which is a sort of very pleasant white floral scent. The sort of thing if if you've lived in Europe, you you inevitably know it because they hand them out on May Day every year. Americans the tend real to be, May Day. That's right, the actual <laughs> May Day. That has its own origins in the United States, but that's a whole other story. The scent of Lilial is, so hedonically, it smells of Lily of the Valley, but it has this extraordinary effect that is part of what makes it sort of irreplaceable in the perfume industry. It, it's this lifting, creamy, rich effect that everyone loves and that everyone is desperate to find a way to create without having to use Lilial, which is, you know, which is not good for you anymore. And all of that experience has nothing to do with the the um, you know it's not as if Liliol, when you when you bring it into your nose is also sort of surrounding your head and body and and you know and pushing on you in some sort of physical way you know none of that exists the experience of the lift and the richness and the creaminess is is entirely a creation of your brain presumably and we don't know what it is that Liliol is doing to make that happen but we do know that we feel that. And so I think some of the some of the language that you're that you're getting at has to do with, uh, and part of the complication of describing smell is that it's not only about the actual, what we think of as the as the olfactive qualities of the smells. It's also the effects that they create, and I, and I think that's actually you know th- that sort of smell in in this sense, smell is itself synesthetic, which is to say it's a, it's a sort of combination of senses. It is not only about odor. It's also there's 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 some other largely ineffable quality to smells. And what we're doing with language is is striving to contain some of that, largely failing, but but getting it some. You know, I suspect that talking about Liliol as a rich, creamy, and 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 sort of upward moving scent makes sense to people. People can imagine what that means, as opposed to describing it as as thin um, or watery or drab. God knows why, <laughs> but it but it makes sense. And and so our language for smell is largely that, um, or else we or else we just steal it from other senses: touch, sight, sound. We we take that language and attempt to apply it, and, and sort of hope that at the edges it gets at the essence of of the smells that we smell. Well, Scott. This was great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.